This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. This episode contains explicit language. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Artful Crimes, where I detail crimes committed by and against artists. Last time I told you about the life and death of Van Gogh how he was plagued by mental illness, and how it caused him so many troubles throughout his life. This time, I'll share the life of an artist who, although he was the creator of some of the most beautiful and haunting religious images ever painted, behaved very badly indeed, even committing murder. From what we know, however, he was not mentally ill, but perhaps just a bad seed with a bad attitude, a product of his violent environment, or a man damaged by the trauma of his early life. This is Chapter 2, Caravaggio, The Bad Boy of Rome. Michelangelo Maurice de Caravaggio was born September 29, 1572, in Caravaggio, Italy, a small town that was a two-hour ride east of Milan. His parents were Fermo Maurice, a stonemason, and Lucia Aratori. His mother had some connections to nobility in Italy, but the family was decidedly middle class. His mother's connections would serve Caravaggio well later in his life, when he needed financial help and a place to hide out. Caravaggio was born just after the end of the High Renaissance period in Italy, but he was not named Michelangelo after the famed artist and sculptor Michelangelo Buonarotti, but after the Archangel Michael, whose feast day he was born on. His mother thought naming her son after one of the most powerful and loved of God's angels would help keep him safe and holy. Safe, perhaps. Holy, definitely not. And holiness was job one in Milan, Italy. No less so because it was under the watchful eye and control of Carlo Borromeo, who was made Archbishop of Milan in 1565. Borromeo enacted many reforms that dictated life for the residents of Milan during his tenure, and for many reasons. The Roman Catholic Church had its authority threatened by both the Protestant Reformation, beginning in 1517, and a long history of conflict with the Muslims of the Ottoman Empire. The year Caravaggio was born, there had been a bloody conflict between Christians and the Ottoman Empire at the Battles of Lepanto, in which the Catholics were victorious. Milan also had a reputation as a rough city with sin on the rise. Milan was famed for its sword-making, and the men of Milan had a reputation as expert swordsmen. They were not shy about showing off their skills in the streets when altercations arose. Archbishop Borromeo decided that a come-to-Jesus moment was needed, literally, and began to implement reforms that would reintroduce the importance of the sacraments, of the Bible as the unerring word of God, and of good works. Protestantism had introduced the idea that people were saved by faith alone, with or without good works, i.e. good behavior. It also gave permission to read and interpret the Bible for themselves. The Catholic Church believed that the priesthood alone had the final say on the meaning of the Bible and its application. Some of the reforms in Milan that Borromeo put into place were the segregation of men and women in church services and the founding of scores of seminaries and schools in which Catholic children were educated by the priesthood. Over 40,000 children were being educated in these schools by the 1580s. Borromeo's goal was to train up an army of priests. And most importantly, sin was to be stamped out, and Borromeo saw sin everywhere. 
dress codes were put into place for parishioners, especially women. He introduced the confessional box where, where confessors were physically separated from the priest in a small booth-like enclosure. The more distance between people, the less chance for sin to occur. These confessionals are still used today in many Catholic churches. Rather than the priest-confessor privilege of confidentiality that exists today, priests were instructed to turn in confessors who were considered to be heretics or admitted to owning forbidden books, such as the poetry of Petrarch, Boccaccio's Decameron, and Machiavelli's writing on political theory, all considered to be classic works of literature today. Borromeo also tried to ban dancing on feast days and Sundays, including one of the most important feast days, the pre-Lent Carnival. If you're not familiar with this festival, it's comparable to Mardi Gras. This was not well tolerated by the citizens, being the one time they could really cut loose before they were required to sacrifice drink, dance, and, well, fun for the 40 days before Easter Sunday. Borromeo, to pile onto his undoubted unpopularity, also prohibited jousts, tournaments, masquerades, plays, and dances. While artists had much more freedom during the High Renaissance, the new reforms had curtailed some artistic expression. The full nudes that had been painted during the Renaissance were now considered to be vulgar, and even Adam's private parts had fig leaves painted over them in the Sistine Chapel. Religious imagery, it was now stressed, should be only for devotional purposes. Anything that distracted from that was against church doctrine. Also, images should adhere strictly to Bible descriptions. Artists were no longer free to interpret Bible scenes, but their work had to be checked by priests to ensure conformity. Fines and punishments were levied against artists who didn't follow these rules. This was the world that Caravaggio grew up in, and by all accounts, he didn't take well to it. His upbringing was more privileged than most. His father was a stonemason, which might be considered a humble profession now, but they were in very high demand and were considered artisans, of which it seems Caravaggio inherited some of his artistic ability. When he was still a boy, he moved with his family from the town of Caravaggio to their new home in Milan. The family, however, still owned property in Caravaggio. In 1576, the plague broke out in Milan. In the first two months, almost 10,000 people died. The family moved out of the city and back to Caravaggio, hoping to outrun the disease. But by the following year, when he was six years old, the bubonic plague had taken his father, his grandfather, his grandmother, and his uncle. The plague finally abated in early 1578, but by then, over one-fifth of the population of Milan was dead. Now only Caravaggio, his mother, and three other siblings remained. His brother Giovanni left to enter the priesthood. Caravaggio was left without any male authority figures in his life, which would possibly contribute to his unruly ways as he grew into young adulthood. There are no records of Caravaggio's early interest in a career in art, but in 1584, he signed a contract to apprentice at the art studio of Simone Pedrozano in Milan. There he was to be taught painting. His four-year contract required him to pay Pedrozano 24 gold scudi every year for this privilege. This was unusual because most apprentices worked in the studio of their employer and were in turn given free room and board. Some apprentices were even paid a small stipend for the work they performed but Caravaggio was required to pay a somewhat large sum. This possibly was because his family did have some money, 
and or perhaps because he came without any artistic skills or training. Either way, the fact that he was paying to live and work in Pedrozano's studio might in part be the reason why there are no records of any work by Caravaggio done during his apprenticeship. No paintings, no drawings. In fact, there are no known drawings ever done by Caravaggio. X-ray imaging done in modern times of his paintings show no preliminary sketches on the canvas before paint was applied, almost unheard of for any other artist. Caravaggio had a natural talent with paint and simply began painting by putting brush to canvas. Caravaggio's first known works wouldn't be done until 1592, after he'd moved to Rome. In the four years he was in the apprentice studio, he would have learned the basics of the Renaissance techniques of painting and how to prepare and grind colors. It seems he did learn this, but little else. He also should have learned drawing, but as I mentioned, it seems he must have skipped these classes. And he should have learned the technique of fresco painting, the art of painting a mural over wet plaster. Caravaggio never painted a fresco in his life, even though they were in demand and paid well, so it's likely this was another class he missed. Early reports of Caravaggio describe him as a difficult young man. He had swagger and liked to settle disagreements with violence, something that would continue throughout his life. He also seemed to be a creature of the night, often seen wandering the streets at night, drinking, carousing, and generally causing trouble. He always seemed to gravitate to other boys and men like himself, troublemakers, much like modern gang members today. He would seek out the company of brothers-in-arms and then finding strength in numbers, perhaps felt even more comfortable starting trouble. In 1588, when his studio contract was up, Caravaggio began selling all the land he had inherited after his father's death. In 1590, his mother bequeathed all her remaining assets to be divided between her three surviving children. She must have been in poor health, because one month later she died. Caravaggio's brother and sister took some of the cash as well as land, but Caravaggio set out to sell all of his assets, and took only cash. He left Milan for good, taking with him 600 gold scudi, or to put it in perspective, six times the cost of his four-year apprenticeship. By the end of the year, he had blown through all of his money. He was 21 years old. Caravaggio arrived in Rome in 1592 to look for work as a painter. Rome was a city with a split personality, much like Caravaggio himself. The capital of Catholic Christendom and the most holy of places, the Basilica of St. Peter's, was surrounded by the slums and squalid homes that were still not quite recovered from the sack of Rome by Charles V's troops in 1527. Street life was very live for the moment in Rome. Who knew when the next attack would come, ending life as you knew it? Caravaggio would have been very familiar with this feeling, having lost almost his entire family in the plague and this may have contributed to his devil-may-care attitude throughout his life. Caravaggio arrived in Rome at about the same time a new pope was elected. Pope Clement VIII had relaxed some of the restrictions on artists, at least for works that would be held in private collections, but restrictions on public life was another matter altogether. He continued to enforce standards set down by the Council of Trent for Catholics. He enforced a crackdown on prostitution introduced a curfew, put in place a ban on carrying weapons in public, outlawed dueling, and made libel a capital offense. The papal police had wide-ranging powers to stop and search anyone they suspected of not following the rules. 
Another way that Rome had a dual personality was its long-standing history of both holy ceremony and public violence. It was mandatory for citizens to attend religious services on holy days like Easter. But alternately, public executions were still carried out, in particularly gruesome fashion. A criminal would be taken to the gallows in a town square or piazza, and after being hung, would be cut into pieces in front of the crowd, while a priest would preach from the platform about the wages of sin. There was also frequent violence between citizens. Unemployed French and Spanish soldiers were rivals for influence in Rome and often took their brawls into the streets. But the most violent section of the city was the artist colony. The artist colony was comprised of about two square miles located about two miles from the Vatican Palace. When Caravaggio arrived in Rome, about 2,000 artists lived there. These artists hailed from many nations. They were French, German, Flemish, and Italian, and they all fought for resources, paid commissions, supplies, and women. Women were vastly outnumbered by men in the city. Soldiers, artists, and others came in droves, and they were in short supply and high demand. Many prostitutes worked in the city. They often played favorites, conferring special favors or free favors upon the men they liked best. This would lead to violent fights and sometimes duels. Artists tended to run in gangs with their own countrymen. Even Italians broke out into regional factions. Romans hated Sicilians, Bolognese hated Tuscans, and those from Milan were considered the most unruly and dangerous, as they had a reputation as being quick with the sword. All these rivalries made the area even more dangerous as artists were openly hostile to each other, hurling racial insults, as well as insults about each other's artistic skills, or lack thereof. The papal police had their hands full trying to keep order. One way they sought to scare troublemakers straight was to inflict a particularly harsh punishment for being caught carrying a pugnello, or a short-handled dagger. A person caught with the outlawed weapon was subject to a punishment called a strapado, where they would have their hands tied behind their backs. Another loop was then passed between the joined arms. Then the offender would be lifted into the air and left to dangle for half an hour. The weight of their body would cause the arms to be pulled further and further back, dislocating the shoulders. Artists subjected to this punishment would be unable to work for weeks afterwards. The commissions the artists were most interested in, and where most of the competition lie, was those of the cardinals, and especially those closest to the Pope. To receive a commission from one of them meant fame, money, and security. When Caravaggio first arrived in Rome, without money or a name in the art world, he bounced around from studio to studio, mostly working for unremarkable painters on small projects. He was hired to, quote, paint flowers and fruit, and he painted well. He soon met a young man who had become a friend, Mario Manidi. Manidi would also be a model for several of his early works, including Boy with a Basket of Fruit. In this painting, Caravaggio painted a typical scene for that time, but he painted the fruit to look somewhat bruised with brown spots, and some of the leaves also seemed to be in a state of decay. Caravaggio would always, in his paintings, endeavor to show the true nature of things. Flowers die, fruits decay, and human nature as well was often far from beautiful or ideal. Caravaggio worked for a time at the Cesare Brothers studio in 1593. The Cesare Brothers had their own outlaw history. 
Shortly before Caravaggio was employed there, Bernardino Cesari had been given a death sentence for running with a gang of bandits and had fled Rome. By the following year, the year Caravaggio arrived, he had returned, having secured a papal pardon. After eight months at the studio, Caravaggio left. The details are unknown, but there is some reference to the Cesari brothers hiding Caravaggio, and it was recorded that they did not want anyone to know he was living there. Caravaggio was in dire straits at this time. Needing money for room and board, he made some paintings and took them to picture dealers with shops in Rome and sold a few on commission only. It seems he would take whatever he could get to feed and clothe himself at this time. But this became fortuitous when one of the picture dealers, Costantino Spada, introduced him to the art-loving Cardinal Del Monte. Cardinal Del Monte would become Caravaggio's first patron. For him, he painted two of his best-known and intriguing paintings, the Gypsy Fortune Teller and the Card Sharps. Both paintings show not a religious scene, but a scene that depicts con men or con women in the middle of a swindle. In the Gypsy Fortune Teller, a young man, modeled by Mario Miniti, is having his palm read by a female fortune teller. Unseen by him, at the same time, she is removing his gold ring. In the card sharps, a young man is in the middle of a card game. His opponent has cards hidden behind his back, while his accomplice is peeking over the young man's shoulder and signaling what cards the boy is holding. In both pictures, Caravaggio is showing the seedy side of life, probably very familiar to Romans, but never seen portrayed in a painting. This type of genre painting would become in high demand and was introduced by Caravaggio. The cardinal would keep the paintings displayed in his private residence. Caravaggio was now offered room and board with Cardinal Del Monte. The cardinal was in possession of three residences, two in Rome and one in the countryside, then he wanted more paintings to decorate. However, he was not wealthy. The homes he had didn't belong to him, but to the Medicis, the powerful and wealthy Italian banking family, who were also great patrons of the arts. Even once Caravaggio gained some success with his paintings, he still didn't seem to take his vocation very seriously. After receiving accolades and income from a few paintings, he would spend a month resting on his laurels and spend most of his money drinking and gambling and his spare time getting into fights. He began to get into increasingly serious scrapes with the law. By 1597, Caravaggio had been in Rome for about five years and had become a painter of some renown. That year, he was called before the governor's tribunal to give testimony about an assault that he was accused of taking part in. Several men were being interrogated. They all testified to having been in the area in the night in question, but wouldn't admit to taking part in the fracas. They testified that they'd been in the vicinity of the Via della Scrofa on that night and heard some cries in the dark. Then a dark figure of a man was seen running away. A man had been wounded in a fight, but would not say who his attacker or attackers were. Caravaggio's name was brought up because it was determined that he was present that night, and also because, quote, he is the only one to carry a sword because he is in the service of Cardinal Del Monte, which apparently gave him special treatment since carrying a sword in public was prohibited. As a matter of fact, it seems he was only questioned briefly even though he obviously would have had information as to the events of that evening, because he had friends in high places. This would continue to help Caravaggio wriggle his way out of trouble time and time again. Side note, totally random. 
Reading all the accounts that went down in Rome during Caravaggio's time was really fun for me because I've been to Rome and I recognize many of the described neighborhoods and landmarks. When I read that this fight had taken place on the Via della Scrofa, I had a flashback to a memory from Rome. On the Via della Scrofa, there is a restaurant that has been there since 1907 called Alfredo alla Scrofa and claims to be the place where Fettuccine Alfredo was first invented. Whether it was invented there or not, I will tell you, it is to die for. It's probably one of the best things I've ever eaten in my entire life. No lie. Okay, I'm hungry now, but back to the story. Not long after this inquiry, which, by the way, the investigation was dropped due to not being able to get information out of anyone, including the victim, Caravaggio was arrested. He must have felt somewhat untouchable because it was reported that he wore his sword in the streets openly, day and night. And he wasn't shy about using it. In those days, if you were wounded, you weren't hauled to the hospital, but to the barbershop. Barbers were called barber surgeons, and they were the ones that would sew you back up and dress your wounds. There are records of Caravaggio having been to a barber surgeon at least once to have his wounds dressed. On May 5, 1598, at the age of 26, Caravaggio was arrested for the first time for bearing arms in public. After a night in jail, Caravaggio appeared in court. When asked to account for this violation of the law, he responded, I was arrested last night because I was carrying a sword. I carry a sword by right because I am painter to the Cardinal del Monte. I am in his service and live in his house. I am entered on his household payroll. In this response, we see a young man unapologetic and giving no other defense other than the do you know who I am defense. He seems haughty and somewhat full of himself, or at least entitled. Once again, because of his powerful contacts, he was released and the case was dismissed. An art historian described Caravaggio and the friends he hung out with as, quote, brash, swaggering fellows, painters and swordsmen who lived by the motto, nec spec, nec metu, or without hope, without fear. One theory put forward as to why some of these artists were so violent and aggressive was that the paints they worked with had toxins lead, and other poisons. When a person was frequently exposed to them, it was said, it could cause a person to become depressed, anxious, and increasingly aggressive. Interesting to consider, especially in light of what we learned about Van Gogh's mental state in the last episode. Van Gogh, as you may know, not only used his paintbrush, but his thumb and fingers to apply the paint to the canvas. Also, witnesses recall seeing him suck on a dry paintbrush while he worked. And of course, there might have been some residual toxins left on such an instrument. Whether it was Caravaggio's history of loss and upheaval in his life, the environment in which he found himself in Rome, toxins, or just plain assholishness that caused his aggressiveness and devil-may-care attitude, Caravaggio would have a long track record of transgressions. By most accounts, he was often the ringleader of a band of thugs, including a very violent fellow in his own right, the architect Honorio Longhi. A thug architect. That's a new one on me, to be sure. Honorio also had powerful connections and some significant commissions, including some very important churches in Rome. It's written that he was constantly in court, charged with disturbing the peace and a variety of other offenses, and was also described as a lawless leader for the youth. Honorio and Caravaggio were often in the company of each other. Caravaggio would start fights and draw his sword for any number of perceived slights. He would brandish his sword and threaten someone if he was accidentally bumped into the street or if he felt he wasn't given enough respect. 
There is even one record of a fight in a bakery where he had gone in to buy a meringue. I mean, seriously, who gets into a fight in a bakery? Besides Disneyland, that's got to be the happiest place on earth. Am I right? Caravaggio continued to get important commissions, and his paintings were increasingly heralded as great works of art. It's obvious that Caravaggio was a talented prodigy in the art world. He was largely unschooled and untaught, but beautiful works of art just seemed to flow from his paintbrush naturally. By 1600, he was considered one of the leading painters in Rome. Also in 1600, Caravaggio became embroiled in a fight with a soldier. There were many unemployed mercenary soldiers in the streets of Rome. His friend Honorio was also on the scene, and records show that Caravaggio wounded the soldier. The case was settled out of court, with the painter probably compensating him for his wounds to avoid a jail sentence. Soon after, he also assaulted a young art student who filed a police report. The man was ambushed from behind and hit in the head with a stick. When he turned to defend himself, Caravaggio drew his sword and the student moved fast enough to only receive a slash in his cloak. It's believed that this was some type of revenge attack. Artists were constantly criticizing other painters and denigrating each other's work. Caravaggio would never let a comment he perceived as disrespectful go. He would always find a way to retaliate. Again, the case was not pursued, probably for lack of evidence. Caravaggio had left Cardinal Del Monte's household and had become the patron of a more powerful cardinal, Girolamo Mattei. With his influence, Caravaggio began securing even more prestigious commissions, including altarpieces like The Death of the Virgin for the Church of Santa Maria della Scala. Caravaggio had a fierce critic in the artist Giovanni Baglioni, who was jealous of his success and didn't shy away from calling his rival a hack. He felt that Caravaggio's patrons had been duped by slick marketing. He wrote, The Marchese has been put into this frame of mind by Caravaggio's henchmen. Moreover, Signor Mattei succumbed to the propaganda. Thus Caravaggio pocketed from this gentleman many hundreds of scudi. Not content to stop with mere words, Baglioni then painted a picture intended to satirize Caravaggio. In it, he visually accuses Caravaggio of sodomy with a young boy. He continued to gossip with his friends about Caravaggio's homosexual tendencies and his rumored liaisons with young boys. These accusations were not only damaging to a person's reputation, but could also be fatal. Sodomy was a capital crime in Rome at the time. It could also lead to financial losses, with some refusing to employ a painter suspected of being a sodomite. Surprisingly, Caravaggio did not immediately retaliate. It wasn't until the following spring of 1603 that he exacted his revenge, in the form of a poem. Copies of this poem were being passed around the artist's quarter in Rome. The poem was performed before audiences in the taverns. The poem was, of course, a thinly veiled attack on Baglioni, being addressed to Gian Bagalia, which roughly translates to Johnny Testicle. It reads, Gian Balia, you don't even know that your pictures are mere women's work. I want to see that you don't even earn a counterfeit penny from them, because with as much canvas as it would take to make yourself a pair of breeches, you can show everyone what shit truly is. Therefore, take your drawing and cartoons that you have made to Andrea, the grocer's shop, so he can wrap fruit and veg in them, or wipe your arse in them, the next two lines I'll skip. They are particularly profane. But it ends with, Pray pardon me, painter, if I do not worship you, because you don't merit that chain you wear around your neck. 
he was given a chain as a reward for the satirical painting he'd made of Caravaggio. And your painting deserves only vituperation. Of course, it sounds much better in the original Italian, I'm sure. A second poem was also written and shared that, that enumerated the many ways Baglioni was a terrible painter and human being. But as you might recall, slander and libel were considered especially heinous offenses in Rome then. Harsh penalties, including sentences of several years to life rowing in papal galleys, could be administered to anyone who, quote, defamed and detracted from honor and reputation under the guise of cleverly written poems and witty epigrams or libelous prose. Baglioni decided to take the case before the courts, hoping undoubtedly that Caravaggio would have the book thrown at him and he could get rid of his hated rival. In September 1603, Caravaggio was seized along with some accomplices, including Honorio Longhi, and thrown into solitary confinement to await trial. When he was called to testify before the court, he still seemed to have his swagger, although he went about it more politely. When asked to express his thoughts about Baglioni to the court, he said, I don't know of any painter who thinks that Giovanni Baglioni is a good painter. When asked about a certain painting of Baglioni's, his response was, It's a bungle. I think it's the worst he's done, and I haven't heard any painter praise the said painting. Of all the painters I've spoken to, no one liked it. The trial seemed to be going badly for Caravaggio, but unexpectedly on September 25, 1603, he was released from prison. It seems that his old friend, Cardinal Del Monte, had arranged his release. After the libel trial, he was living, for the first time in a long time, without a patron. He was in a rented apartment. His paintings were starting to fall out of favor. The church had declared that portraying religious images the way Caravaggio did, their holy icons made too human, with dirty feet and ragged clothes, was disgraceful and unacceptable. As a result, he'd received only three commissions for large-scale public religious paintings between 1603 and 1606. As these had been his bread and butter, he now lived much more modestly. At about this time, one of Caravaggio's most well-known public rows happened. In the spring of 1604, he was having dinner at a local restaurant, and some artichokes were ordered for the table. When they were served, Caravaggio asked the waiter which of the artichokes were cooked in oil and which in butter. The waiter said he didn't know, and then picked one up and smelled it, most likely to imply... Why don't you smell them and find out, idiot? Caravaggio jumped out of his chair in a rage and said, It seems to me, you fucked over cuckold, that you think you're speaking to some kind of vulgar provincial. He then picked up the plate and threw it at the waiter, gashing his face. Once again, Caravaggio was not about to put up with what he perceived as disrespect. Although he had little money, he was known to go about with ragged pants, and the waiter probably thought him some local loser. Caravaggio wanted him to know that he was somebody. On June 4, 1604, he was sentenced for his attack on the waiter. The record shows he was accused of, quote, wounding a man under the left eye with an earthenware plate. But we don't know what sentence was handed down. It couldn't have been very serious because he was free on October 19th when he was thrown in jail again for throwing rocks at some police officers. That autumn, he was also charged with using offensive language against an officer. Another time, he was stopped at night and asked if he was carrying a sword. He replied yes, and asked if he had a license for it. He said yes, and presented the license. The officer then thanked him and sent him on his way. As Caravaggio walked away, he could not resist adding, you can stick it up your arse, 
and was arrested. Caravaggio was clearly spinning out of control. There is no record of any paintings being completed at this time. In fact, he had one commission that was overdue by several months that he had yet to finish. Even so, his debts were piling up and his rent was overdue. In July of 1605, Caravaggio was charged with the attack on a notary. The man had been walking at night in the Piazza Navona when he felt a blow to the back of his head. He believed he'd been struck by a sword and was bleeding. He didn't see the man, but said the only person he had a dispute with was Michelangelo Caravaggio. Given his reputation, Caravaggio was quickly picked up by the police. He made bail and at the end of July skipped out and fled to Genoa. There were still people in Rome, including Cardinal Del Monte, who had a stake in him returning and continuing to churn out new paintings for their collections. There were also those who had paid him and had unfinished paintings that they were waiting for him to deliver. A deal was struck to return Caravaggio to the city, and in August he returned. He made some financial compensation to the victim and had to sign a statement confessing and apologizing. The matter was then closed. While he was away, his landlady, owed back rent and with Caravaggio nowhere in sight, seized his possessions from his apartment and changed the locks. Two unfinished canvases were also seized, the paintings that were owed to paid customers and long overdue. Caravaggio, angered by his landlady's actions, went to her home and threw rocks at her window, for which he was promptly arrested four days after being let off of his last charge. In December 1605, Caravaggio was given a commission for an important work, an altarpiece for St. Peter's, the most important church in Christendom. Badly needing money and perhaps feeling like he was finally receiving the respect due him, Caravaggio finished the painting in four months. The painting was The Madonna and the Serpent. It was a large canvas, 10 feet tall and 6 feet across. He delivered the painting on April 8th, and it was installed in the chapel on April 14th. Two days later, it was removed. Two months after that, it was sold to Cardinal Scipione Borghese, a nephew of Pope Paul V, and an art collector and admirer of Caravaggio's work. The Virgin Mary in Caravaggio's depiction was considered to be just too human, and it scandalized the church. For one thing, she was painted with large breasts and wearing a low-cut red dress. While some interpret this as a true representation of motherhood and womanhood, she is seen holding the Christ child in the picture. The church authorities could not abide it. This rejection had to be a blow to Caravaggio's pride. Soon after he completed this painting, he finally finished the long overdue piece, The Death of the Virgin. It was intended for the Church of Santa Maria della Scala, which belonged to an order of Carmelite nuns, to whom the Virgin was especially sacred. As soon as the painting was delivered, it was rejected. This time, not only was the depiction too gritty for their tastes, the Virgin Mary, rather than often depicted not in death, but descending into heaven, is shown looking very dead, and again in a red dress. But beyond that, the model for the Virgin, whose face is very recognizable, was a known prostitute in Rome. Soon after these two devastating blows to Caravaggio's pride and his reputation, he would find himself charged with his most serious offense to date, when he was accused of murder. One of Caravaggio's chief rivals in Rome had long been Ranuccio Tomassoni. Ranuccio was a pimp, and one of his girls named Felide was often hired by Caravaggio as a model. Felide was known as Ranuccio's most beautiful courtesan, so there may have been some jealousy between the two men. There is also a rumor that Caravaggio might have himself tried to become a pimp. 
His theory points to the fact that Caravaggio seemed to know many of the girls very well, employing them as models and then possibly trying to persuade them to ply their trade and use him as their protector. It also takes into account that he was always seen in the late evening hours and how he was described as always being dressed in black. At that time, to be dressed in black and out at night was a sign that you were hiding something, usually nefarious. If it's true that Caravaggio was trying to take business away from Manuccio, this could be a very good motivation for their intense rivalry. However it came to be, on March 28, 1606, Caravaggio and Renuccio Tomassoni met on a tennis court and fought a duel. The flat fields of the tennis courts were used as fencing arenas. The duel, which was prearranged, was fought in the evening. At some point, Caravaggio struck Renuccio in the thigh with his sword, severing his femoral artery. Mortally wounded, Renuccio's brother Giovanni, who was also present, jumped in to defend him. He began fighting with one of Caravaggio's friends, who now jumped into the fight as well. Captain Petronio Topa was severely injured, having sustained several knife wounds. Caravaggio also received an injury in the melee. Renuccio was rushed to the barber surgeon, but he bled to death soon after. Topa was also treated and then arrested and jailed. Caravaggio fled. His good friend and longtime partner in crime, Honorio Longhi, had also been present at the duel, but had escaped uninjured and fled to Milan. Caravaggio, who was nowhere to be found, was tried in absentia and sentenced to be exiled. Dueling was punishable by death in Rome, but perhaps they just wanted to be rid of Caravaggio, or perhaps he was still valuable as a painter, but too much of a nuisance to have him living and working in Rome. But the sentence was still serious. He was sentenced to indefinite exile but was also condemned as a murderer and was subject to bando capitali, or a capital sentence, which meant that anyone had the right to kill him and receive a bounty for his head, literally. His entire body did not need to be delivered to receive the reward. Caravaggio's run from the law took him first to the Alban Hills and then to Naples. He quickly began to plan how he could get back into the good graces of the papal authorities so he could return to Rome. As always, he knew it would have to be through art. So he painted a picture to be given to Scipione Borghese. Not only was he the Pope's nephew, he was also the chief administrator of papal justice. If he played his cards right, Caravaggio thought, he might just broker a pardon from the Pope for him. The painting was David and Goliath and it is filled with meaning and symbolism from this desperate time for Caravaggio. In it, young David of the Bible has just slain the giant Goliath. He holds Goliath's gruesome severed head by the hair. The face of Goliath is a self-portrait of Caravaggio himself. The painting was offered to Scipione to say, Here is my head, sacrificed symbolically for you. He gave him his head in the painting so that he could keep his real head on his shoulders. The painting was sent to Scipione, but he did not hang it in public for several years, probably because he didn't want people to know he'd been petitioned by a murderer. But he did begin to work behind the scenes for the artist's pardon. When no word had come from Rome by October of 1606, Caravaggio fled further south to Naples. As soon as he arrived, he began receiving many offers for commissions. His reputation as a celebrated artist was well known, and the wealthy and powerful were eager to pay him for his work. He received private as well as public commissions. He was even given a large altarpiece to paint called The Seven Acts for the High Altar at the Church of Pio Monte. The entire building was designed around Caravaggio's painting. 
But suddenly and surprisingly, Caravaggio left Naples for Malta in the spring of 1607. He decided that the next honor that should be bestowed on him was a knighthood. The Knights of the Order of St. John had been an institution since the year 1070. The Knights of St. John won a claim in 1565 when their troops conquered the Turks in the Siege of Malta. They were legendary for their bravery and their fierceness in battle, and Caravaggio wanted to receive the coveted Cross of Malta by receiving a knighthood. Maybe he felt he needed this to redeem his reputation, or to bolster his ego, or perhaps it was because the Knights of St. John were above the law and subject only to their own legal code. He couldn't be reached by Roman authorities there. Maybe by now he believed he might never receive his pardon from the Pope and was hedging his bets. Besides, his hated rival Baglioni had just been given a papal knighthood. That had to stick in Caravaggio's craw. In June 1607, Caravaggio arrived on the island of Malta. In order to become a member as a knight of justice or a knight of grace, you had to show an unbroken lineage from a noble family, of which Caravaggio could not. There was one other avenue open to him. He could apply to become a knight of magistral obedience that was given to men of merit, noble or not. Caravaggio set out to earn one of these knighthoods in the only way he knew how, through his talent as an artist. He set up his studio and began to paint religious pictures that would be highly prized by the prestigious Catholic order. His first painting was St. Jerome Riding. It was praised highly, and other commissions quickly followed. He then was first asked to paint the portrait of one of the most distinguished knights of Malta, Fra Antonio Martelli. By November, he was painting the portrait of none other than the Grand Master of the Knights himself, Alaf de Wignacourt. His portrait now hangs in the Louvre. Wignacourt was delighted with his portrait, and most historians believe that Caravaggio received his knighthood for this painting. Wignacourt had to petition for permission from the Pope to confirm the honor on the artist, and in February 1608 it was granted. They received this reply. It has pleased the Most Holy Father to approve for Olof de Wignacourt, Grand Master of the Order of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem, authority to present the habit of magistral knight to two persons favored by him, despite the fact that one of the two committed homicide in a brawl. The other person who had received the knighthood along Caravaggio was not named. Can you imagine that guy? What honorable works and exemplary life he must have led to receive this honor, and then to be knighted with a murderer who painted a couple of pictures for it? Life is so not fair. But in order to receive the honor as a novice, he first had to spend a whole year on the island. He was also supposed to pay a tribute before being allowed in the Brotherhood, and he had no money for the payment, so he, you guessed it, painted another altarpiece. This time it was the Beheading of St. John. This was a massive painting, measuring at over 10 feet high and 15 feet wide. The painting depicts the Bible story of when Herod had John the Baptist beheaded as a gift for Salome. This is the only painting Caravaggio ever signed, and he uses the blood gushing from St. John's neck to write his name with, signing it F. Michelangelo, the F short for Fra, or brother, as his official prefix as a knight of St. John. On July 14, 1608, a year and two days after he arrived at Malta, Caravaggio was officially inducted into the Order of the Knights of Malta as a knight of magistral obedience and given the title of Fra Michelangelo Marisi. 
Caravaggio had succeeded at his goal at being conferred a title of honor and respect. As a knight, Caravaggio was subject to a strict set of rules of conduct. First, knights were not allowed to leave the island without direct permission from the Grand Master. Nor was disorderly conduct tolerated. No insults, no shouting, no fighting or dueling with swords was permitted. It was somewhat unlikely that the new brother Michelangelo would adhere to these rules for long. A mere one month after he was knighted, Caravaggio took part in a brawl where another knight was badly injured. Reports indicate that a group of younger knights, including Caravaggio, got into a dispute with the Knight of Justice, who outranked him. Caravaggio had somehow insulted the senior knight and was called out for it. Then the six junior knights, led by Caravaggio, began to brawl. A knight who was with Caravaggio, Giovanni Pietro de Ponte, was carrying a small pistol, and it was bullets from this weapon that had injured the senior knight, named Giovanni Roero. While Caravaggio had powerful friends on Malta, including the Grand Master himself, the seriousness of the crime left them no choice but to arrest him. On August 28th, he was arrested and sent to the prison of Castel San Angelo. One thing that probably crosses your mind at this point in the story is, what was wrong with this guy? I mean, he keeps getting out of these scrapes, and yet he keeps getting back into scrapes. When he's almost just done and out, does something to sabotage himself. It's a complete self-sabotage job. And as I'm reading about Caravaggio, I'm thinking about this. Because I used to work with juvenile gang members. I worked with them when they were incarcerated, and I worked with them when they would first get out. And what I frequently saw was just before they were about to be released from prison or from probation, they would do something to self-sabotage and either be put on probation again or sent back to jail or not released. And it really is a phenomenon that happens. And it's almost like, this is who I am. I'm a bad guy. And this is where I should be. So they sabotage themselves to stay where it's most comfortable for them. But I see this with Caravaggio, and I wonder about that, whether he was sabotaging himself because he felt this, this was who he was and this is what he deserved. A month after he was in prison at the Castel San Angelo, Caravaggio escaped. He would have had to have help in order to escape the prison and then the island, but it is unknown who did so. What is known is that by October 1608, he was in the coastal town of Syracuse, over 60 miles away. He was officially declared missing on October 6. He then moved on to hide in Sicily. On November 27th, he was still at large, and his trial went on in his absence. He was sentenced to be defrocked, and the ceremonial punishment was carried out at the Oratory of St. John, under Caravaggio's own painting, The Beheading of St. John. It was then written in the record, The said brother Michelangelo de Caravaggio was in the public assembly by the hands of the Reverend Lord President, deprived of his habit, and expelled and thrust forth like a rotten and diseased limb from our order and society. In Sicily, although still free, Caravaggio was in a bad state. He was anxious and nervous having to constantly look over his shoulder. It was said he went to bed fully dressed with his dagger constantly at his side. His constant companion during this time was a black dog he named Crow, who he taught to do tricks and most likely was employed as a watchdog so that Caravaggio could have an additional set of eyes and ears to warn him of any threats. He continued to secure commissions for paintings for money to help fund his travels, but he would paint them quickly and then move on just as soon as they were completed. 
Meanwhile, he still had some rich and powerful friends in the Colonna family who had long ties to his mother and her family. The Marquesa had worked to secure a truce with Wignacourt in Malta. A deal had been worked out in which Caravaggio would send some paintings back to Malta and also agree to stop using his knight's title as he was now defrocked. Caravaggio had moved on to Naples where he felt safer. After hearing about the deal made with Wignacourt, he was even more hopeful. This, he believed, could open up another chance for a pardon from the Pope and the possibility of a return to Rome. To celebrate, Caravaggio decided to visit a tavern popular with artists and poets. Unknown to him, he was followed to the tavern by a group of armed men. When he left that evening, he was ambushed. Caravaggio received a serious wound, a deep cut to his face that was often used as a retaliation for some insult or to revenge a person's honor. Traditional accounts later would say that this was in retaliation for the murder of Ranuccio Tomassoni, but as it was several years after the murder and a long distance from Rome, that is unlikely. It's more likely that they were men from Malta who were avenging the shooting of Giovanni Roero. It's probable that having escaped from prison and then being defrocked being his only punishment, and on top of that, he was able to make a deal to have the charges dropped, that this didn't sit well with Roero and his people it is very likely that they would seek to exact their own form of justice. Caravaggio was extremely debilitated by the attack. He stayed in Naples in the Colonna Palace, recovering for the next six months. Finally, in July of 1610, Caravaggio boarded a boat with three of his paintings, two of St. John the Baptist and one of Mary Magdalene. He had been assured of his imminent papal pardon. Scipione Borghese, the Pope's nephew, this time agreed to help Caravaggio obtain the long-awaited pardon, but only if he gave him his entire stock of unsold pictures once he arrived in Rome. So on July 9th, Caravaggio set sail on a boat to Porto Ecole. A week after the boat left Naples, it docked at Palo, a Spanish garrison about 20 miles west of Rome. From there, Caravaggio would need to unload his paintings and hire a cart to transport him and the crates the rest of the way into Rome. But something happened as soon as he arrived at the port. Something was either out of line with his paperwork, or there was some confusion, or perhaps Caravaggio just said something the captain of the garrison didn't like. But for whatever reason, before his cargo could be unloaded, he was whisked away to a holding cell. Hours later, he was able to pay a fine and was released. But the boat carrying his paintings had already shoved off. Caravaggio, knowing that those paintings were his ticket to his pardon, had to catch up with it. The boat's final destination was Porto Ecole, about 50 miles north. He would have to ride over land along the coastline to meet up with the boat there. But Caravaggio was still very ill, still recovering from the serious wounds he received, and was probably already exhausted from the week-long boat trip. A healthy man could have covered the area in a couple of days, but Caravaggio was far from healthy. He did arrive in Porto Ecole, probably around July 18th or 19th, but he was very ill perhaps from heat exhaustion, or he may have suffered a heart attack, but soon after he arrived, Caravaggio died. He was quickly buried without ceremony and placed in an unmarked grave. The boat with his possessions returned to Naples, and the paintings and his other belongings were sent on to the Marchesa Costanza Colonna. Scipione Borghese, hearing about Caravaggio's death, soon sent word that the paintings were to be sent to him in Rome, but it was too late. The local prior of the Knights of Malta had already barged into the palace and taken the paintings away. On the death of any Knight of Malta, their possessions became the property of the order. 
Now Wigna Court was acting like the defrocking of Caravaggio had never happened, so that he could take possession of the paintings. Now a fight took place between Rome and Malta, in letters, threats, and demands. Five months later, only one painting could be found, one of the St. John paintings. It finally found its way to Scipione Borghese, slightly damaged, and is now still in the Borghese collection. A friend of Caravaggio's, Mario Melisi, wrote his epitaph. It reads, Michelangelo Melisi, son of Fermo de Caravaggio, in painting not equal to a painter, but to nature itself, died in Portacoli, betaking himself hither from Naples, returning to Rome, 15th calendar of August, in the year of our Lord, 1610. He lived 36 years, 9 months, and 20 days. Dedicated this to a friend of extraordinary genius. Caravaggio's reputation lives on as a great and important artist who inspired the Baroque period of art. He never established a school or spread his techniques as some other artists have done, but art historians believe that without Caravaggio, artists such as Rembrandt, Delacroix, Manet, and Vermeer would never have existed or have been utterly different. One final note. One work of Caravaggio's was stolen in 1969. The painting, The Nativity with St. Francis and St. Lawrence, was stolen from the Oratory of San Lorenzo in Palermo, Italy. It was valued at over $20 million. Italian police set up an art theft task force with the specific aim of reacquainting lost and stolen artworks. Since the creation of this task force, many leads have been followed regarding the nativity. Ex-mob members have said that the nativity was stolen by the Sicilian mafia and displayed at important mafia gatherings. Ex-mob members have also reported that the nativity was damaged by the mafia and since destroyed. The whereabouts of the nativity are still unknown. A reproduction currently hangs in its place in the Oratory of San Lorenzo. If the mafia is responsible, perhaps they chose this work of art because it was created by a famous bad boy of Rome. Somehow, I think Caravaggio could have appreciated this. That'll do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our marketing assistant is Nancy Chen, and our research assistants are Sabrina Atkinson and Sarah Villarreal. You can find us on Twitter at Upon a Crime, and on Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Pod. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. 
Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.